all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Thank you for thank you for raising your voices and singing that truth together. That really is the foundational truth of this morning's message. That God God provides for his people by his hand. Now, the text we read a few moments ago in chapter 20 likely sounded familiar to many of you, particularly if you've been along the ride in Genesis. Um, Back when Abraham was introduced in chapter 12, uh, by way of review, the Lord had made a promise to Abraham. He says, get out of your country from your family and from your family's, from your father's house, which Abraham references in our text. He says, to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abraham had obeyed immediately, and he journeyed over to the land of Canaan. But if you recall, and this is why the text this morning is familiar, that no sooner had he arrived than a famine struck the land in Canaan. And it drove Abraham further south. In fact, he left the land of Canaan and went to Egypt. And it was in the account that followed in the middle of chapter 12 and to to chapter 13 uh, that Moses recorded numerous threats, remember, the numerous threats that came against the promise of God immediately after he had given them. The land promise was threatened by this famine, uh, and it drove the patriarch from the land. The seed was threatened by Pharaoh and his power, right? He, the, the wife of the patriarch was taken from him, um, and then the blessing was threatened by Abraham's own fear and his faithlessness and how he was responding, just driven by the fear of, having losing, of losing his own life. And what we learned in chapter 12 is that God undid all of those threats. He watered the land, reinstating its fruitfulness. He plagued Pharaoh, restoring Abraham's wife, and he superseded Abraham's fears, reminding us that God's blessing depends upon him and not on Abraham. So, in that text, God had heroically and undeniably protected his promise against every sort of threat. But that was a long time ago. (laughs) Those were the early days of Abraham. That was right as soon as we had met him, and many years have passed since then. Abraham and Sarah have now grown old, and they're somewhat established in this land here in Mamre, by the trees of Mamre. Um, And though they have yet to bear the promised child, it's supremely important for our text today that the last time God interacted with Abraham, he promised him in chapter 17, verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with you, or I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, at this set time next year. So the fact that God has, by his own design, established this countdown to the fulfillment of the promise makes this text far more interesting. While that reality of the sort of the countdown, the within a year you'll bear your son, it does restore hope to the story, you can also see how it might introduce this tremendous tension into the narrative. As most of you are aware, it takes the greater part of a year to gestate a kiddo, and so we're on like a 90-day countdown to conception. It's got to happen within a few months. No pressure, right? 
And that's where we find the significance of the first two verses. Abraham journeys to the south. He dwells between Kadesh and Shur, stays in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. This is bad. This is really bad. You can't have Isaac now, can you? What has Abraham done? And what has Sarah done? And what is God going to do? That's the significance of this text. So this morning we're, we're privileged to ponder the providence of God. As He, the all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful orchestrator, masterfully delivers Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech from bringing His covenant to ruin. Let's spend a moment in prayer before we look more closely at the text. God, this is Your Word. This is Your book. You have spoken it through Your servant Moses, and we have received it through Your faithfulness and the hands of faithful men. I ask that as we open to perhaps an obscure story, one that on its face lacks some significance. Uh, It's repetitive. We've heard this story before. I pray that its impact would not be lessened, but perhaps made more great as we're reminded of the truth that you orchestrate everything to the purpose of your will. You can do anything and everything that you please. Nothing stands in your way, not even our own faithlessness. This is an encouraging truth that I pray you would fortify the souls of your people with this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The structure of this text is relatively simple. Uh, It has four parts. Verses 1 and 2 that we just read are the prologue and introduces the crisis, the tension problem within the narrative. Uh, and then there's two scenes. You may remember it's, it's sort of similar to the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative that there's some that happens in the evening and then right as soon early in the morning at dawn, uh, the next scene occurs. So in the first one, God appears to Abimelech in a dream and uh, he confronts him. And then in the morning, Abimelech turns and he confronts Abraham. This narrative is highly based upon dialogue, which is a little bit unusual. Dialogue's always significant, uh, but when we see it and hear when we see it in mass, it's quite quite instructive for us. And the dialogue primarily revolves around who's to blame? (laughs) Whose fault is this? Who did this great sin? Um, And who's going to resolve it? Is it Abraham? Is it Abimelech? Is it God? Is it all three of them? How how is this going to take place? How are we going to undo problem we've received. And then uh, the epilogue is what unveils that. It brings resolution to the story in the final two verses. So uh, without further ado, the prologue. There are uh, three really simple statements that provide the backdrop for this very intense dialogue that follows. The first significant piece is that Abraham leaves. Uh, he's, He's leaving the trees of Mamre, and he journeys to the Philistine region of Gerar, 
We don't know what prompted this move. We don't know if there's from perhaps some fallout from the Sodom and Gomorrah situation. We don't know if uh, this is just the next best move for him for some other reason. Maybe there's something going on with the land. Maybe We don't really know. Maybe there's some, other, uh, some economic or other relationships with other people going on. Um, but the sojourn is no surprise. Uh, in fact, Abraham is intentionally characterized by this quality, right? He is a sojourner. And that has not just historical impact, but theological impact too. As Hebrews 11 uh, reminds us when we studied not too long ago, by faith Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, right? This eternal city whose builder and maker is God. So this is a part even theologically of the character of Abraham. He's a mover. Um, and the, re- the region to which he moved was in the southernmost portion of Canaan. It's on the southern border, Gerares. Um, so importantly, he doesn't leave like he did last time. He's not in Egypt. He's in Canaan. He hasn't been driven from the land. Um, this is also very close to the place that Hagar had fled previously when, when uh, Sarah and Abram kicked her out. So this is where she was, um, veils in verse 11. And uh, he assumed that this Philistine tribe led by Abimelech lacked propriety and morality and nobility. And so that prompts the second statement. The second statement is that uh, Abraham refers to Sarah once again as his sister. The fact that Moses lets that statement stand on its own without any explanation right now infers that he's, he's assuming we've been along for the Genesis story. Right? He, we've, we, know, we know about this. We know why Abraham does this. We know that he's afraid for his life if it's the same reason as before, even despite her age. He knows that his wife is beautiful and that they may kill him in order to take his wife from him. So this is Abram's scheme of self-preservation. He's convinced that Abimelech and crew will kill him and steal his widow. To his point, he won't be having Isaac that way either, will he? So this uh, scheme sort of worked before in Egypt, so why not employ it once more? Uh, The third piece that's significant and it's the primary one, it's the the crisis, it's the setup for the story. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent for and took Sarah. Now, the name is a little bit interesting. It's a a royal Philistine name uh, that means my father is king. And it's often found throughout the Old Testament. So you may uh, recall that not only does Abraham interact with Abimelech here, but later his son, Isaac, interacts in a very similar way to another Abimelech or the same Abimelech, we're not totally sure, but, but an Abimelech. And then um, Gideon, the judge, names one of his sons Abimelech, interestingly. And then David, he's fighting with an, with an uh, Abimelech that is a Philistine ruler named Achish. So it's kind of interesting that the one that David interacts with also has another name, Achish. This is most likely uh, a Philistine throne title. Okay, so the one who has the throne is named Abimelech, much like perhaps a pharaoh in Egypt would be called. It's the, my father's king, the royal, the royal title. So here, Abraham, the fearful patriarch, he endangers the purity of his marriage. He endangers the womb of his wife. 
at the hand of Abimelech, the Philistine king of Gerar. One commentator summed up the situation well. He says, on the brink of Isaac's story, here, in the very, here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. If it is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man, morally as well as physically. It will very clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. And that certainly is true. So then we arrive on scene one, which is the night. Then uh, the dialogue in the scene is structured uh, chiastically. I'll, I'll leave it up really for you to look at. I'm not going to walk through it in the same way that we normally would, but observe as we talk through the story, the chiastic structure. And it begins very dramatically. God's the first one to speak. He shows up in, he dr- in a dream and he says, you're a dead man. What a way to wake up, right? Wait, what's going on? What have I done? You are a dead man. It's a shocking and a terrifying opening line from God. Now, we know from later in Proverbs that whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks sense. He lacks understanding. And he who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get and his reproach will not be wiped away for jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he, the husband, will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. Right? It is a universal human reality that a husband will respond to the violation of his wife with the fullest measure of fury. That intuition toward righteous order is divinely intended. It's built into our conscience. Now, the next step in the story, then, you would think, should be very much like the first story in the, or the second story in the Abraham Lot trilogy. When Lot is abducted, what does Abraham do? He rallies his men, he rallies his allies, and he storms the mightiest king of the east and other, multiple, and king, other kings with him. So, Abraham should be storming down Abimelech's front door. Instead, in an uncommon twist, God storms Abimelech's front door. Right? He arrives on the scene and he demands Abimelech's death. Again, what a way to wake up. But the text says Abimelech, verse 4, has not come near her. He's not so much as touched Sarah. Now, from the reader's perspective, now we know then that God is in time, right? He's, he, he made it in time to save the womb of Sarah, to preserve the patriarch's wife so that he can make good on his promise. And that's a good thing. But Abraham, or Abimelech, he responds. And he says, Lord, will, will you slay a righteous nation also? Wait, what? A righteous nation? Aren't you a Philistine king? Or what is, what is Abimelech even referring to? Why does he refer to himself that way? That you would uh, slay a righteous nation also, that also means that Abimelech knows about the heavenly rain fire that fell on Sodom. Right? He's thinking about God's judgment, the last nation to have been destroyed, and he acknowledges they were wicked. They deserved what they got. But would you destroy us too? We are righteous, is his argument. He contrasts his own people with the people of Sodom. So this Philistine king, at the very least, has a moral compass. We'll think a little bit more about his character as the story goes on. 
Additionally, Abimelech's words ring very familiar to us because as we look back in chapter 18, verses 23 through 25, the patriarch said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, as to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abimelech is mirroring the patriarch from last narrative. He's interceding for the righteous. The statement about Abraham and Sarah is his second argument. First, I'm a righteous man and these are righteous people with me. Second, there's a statement about the patriarch and his wife. He shifts to their deception. Like, that's the reason this has happened. The, the entire reason that Sarah is in Abimelech's tent is because Abraham and Sarah both lied. Right? Abraham's responsible. He's the one later on that's like, this is my idea, it's my setup, right? we do this everywhere we go sort of a thing. But, he, but Abimelech clarifies, even she, even she herself, right? the woman who's with me, she said, he's my brother. So he makes a statement about um, God, right? Will you do this? Lord, will you slay? He makes a statement about the patriarch and his wife, both of them together. And then he concludes his argument, his defense, with a statement about himself. He says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. I am innocent. My heart is blameless in this. My hands are free from guilt. Notice that Abimelech is not arguing the legitimacy of God's charge. He says, no, I agree. It is wrong to steal a man's wife. That is a great sin, right? Not just, not just wrong, but really, really wrong is, what his, is sort of how he's saying it. He's instead arguing that he sinned in ignorance, he simultaneously admits to the crime and pleads not guilty. So you can hear the genuineness in Abimelech's voice, right? An innocent man opening his very heart for inquiry and search. Not unlike David would later sing, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is, this is my desire. I, I want to walk in the fear of God. So that's a pretty good defense, now, he's still guilty, but it's a good defense. So God responds to him, and this is the center point of the chiasm and the crucial turning point of the entire story. This really is where the providence of God is displayed uh, and, and revealed to us. God says to him, yes, I know. You said rightly, you did this in the integrity of your heart. Right? You are innocent, as you say. In your motive, your motive is innocent. And that's significant. So he agrees to Abimelech's innocence. And then, very significantly, he takes credit for Abimelech's innocence. Right? He says, you know the reason you're innocent? Because I also withheld you from sinning against her, against me. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. You want to know why you haven't touched her? I mean, I know you're a great guy. You're a great guy. You know, you didn't know. But why haven't you? Me. That's why. 
And then thirdly, he instructs Abimelech toward innocence. Now, all of this he does without really lightening the severity of the situation. God doesn't go buddy-buddy with Abimelech, but he, you know, he very seriously at the end is going to present still the consequences that hang in the balance. So in God's response, we as, as the readers, as the observers, the studiers here, we discover that God has been actively guiding the situation the entire time. He didn't just show up in time at the dream. He was there long before. He was there the whole time. Yes, Abimelech is blameless, not only in the fact that he hasn't slept with Sarah, but in the fact that he took a man's wife without the knowledge that he was doing so. But without the direct intervention of God, Abimelech would not have been blameless. The text implies he would have touched her if God hadn't stopped him. Now, pairing Moses' statement here with the one at the end of the story when Abimelech is healed, it seems most likely that what God has done is that he has caused some sort of physical affliction to fall upon Abimelech that prohibited him from interacting intimately with Sarah. Well, that's a really bad stomach flu or something worse. I don't know. But he wasn't able to be with Sarah. Now, God concludes by strongly urging Abimelech to action. Right? Return the man's wife. If you do, you will live. Ignore me, and you and all of your people will die. So, the return of Sarah is the true test of Abimelech's sincerity. Right? If he does then he has spoken rightly. He's blameless. If he doesn't, he's a dead man, right? He's guilty. So, scene two, Abimelech rises early in the morning. <clears throat> Sorry, I've lost my spot. That's why, because I need to say one other thing before we go to scene two. So before we move on, um, Abraham's intercession for Abimelech is essential, right? That's a part of the solution here. So verse seven, restore the man's wife. He doesn't even ask him to intercede for him. He says, because he is a prophet and he will pray for you and then you'll live. So Abraham his, inter his intercession is uh, that which would free Abimelech, that which would move the heart of God toward a not guilty verdict, okay? So certainly we've observed the impact of Abraham's intercession before throughout the Lot trilogy, not only in the third story, but in the others as well. He's the first to intercede on behalf of others in these ancient records. And so by revealing his plans for Sodom to Abraham, if you remember a few weeks ago, God invited Abraham into the role of prophet. The prophet's this one who hears the intention of God, right? And he responds with intercession on behalf of the people. That's what often the prophets did. Now, there's a priestly mediatorial work on, from the people to God as well, but this prophet, he often prayed in response to the word of God's judgment on behalf of the people, and God listened to his prophets, so the benevolence of this mediatory role, Abraham's mediatory role, was key in the survival not only of the nation, but in other surrounding nations as well. So now the Philistine king's life 
ironically lies in the hands of the deceptive husband patriarch prophet that he innocently offended. Now the sun is coming up. So Abimelech rises early. Contrary, again, to lazy Lot, right? You remember what happened in the morning. Angels are shaking him awake. Arise, get out, and they have to drag him out of the city. No, as soon, early in the morning, this is very similar to what was stated of Abraham, uh, or Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood. So he rises just as the patriarch had risen early to observe what's going to happen, and he gets right to action, right? He needs no more urging. He knows his life and the lives of all his people hangs in the balance, and so he gathers everybody, and he tells all these things in their hearing. Now, isn't this so much different than Lot? When the, when the angels called to him and said, hey, call anyone that you know, call anyone that you want to get out of the city, let them know, fire, and get them out. Right? That's sort of what Abimelech is doing here. He gathers all. You see his care for other people. is very others-centered. He's others-oriented in the way that he's interacting as a leader. He's a good, good leader from everything that we know about him. And then as soon as he gathers his now terrified group of people, he calls Abraham. And the idea is that it is Abimelech confronting Abraham, but it is everyone confronting Abraham. He has not just endangered his own wife's life, he's endangered Abimelech's and the entire nation that he rules. So that's very significant here. Uh, Abimelech is taking responsibility for the people under his care. He calls Abraham. So in, once again, similar fashion to God's conversation with him, Abimelech now turns and he confronts Abraham in a very strong and a frustrated way. He uses the verb and one noun, done, five times. It's like an accusatory finger. What have you done? Look at what you've done. Why did you do what you did? And what did I do to make you do what you did? Like, what, have you, what are you thinking? What, what do you have in view? What's your goal that you've done this thing? He's just very angry, and, and rightfully so, he should be. You know, he is, uh, and he's not a singular victim. The state is accusing Abim, uh, Abraham of jeopardizing their nation as a whole. They're perplexed and, and they're furious, as you and I would be and should be if someone else's lie resulted in our guilt, right? I didn't know. I didn't know it was a stolen car. Like, I didn't know. You didn't tell me that. You gave me the impression it was yours sort of a thing. But even sins of ignorance require reparation. So Abraham's defense here is, I think, probably one of the lowest points, definitely the lowest point in the narrative. And one of the lower points uh, in our view of Abraham, he reveals in his speech uh, presumption, selfishness, fear, a justification for his deception. It's not great. You know, first he, Abraham explains his assumption that Abimelech did not fear God and would execute Abraham in order to take Sarah, right? Well, what, what have you done this thing? What was in mind? Well, I didn't think that, like, I had no idea that there were people here that feared God. Now, we can understand that, I suppose. I mean, there are people, we, we've seen Melchizedek before. You know, we know that there are people around. Melchizedek was well known. Maybe Abimelech's not, and he just knows that generally the people are, are pagan, and, and these people may even have been. But he's like, I didn't think you feared God at all. 
I didn't expect to find morality. I didn't expect to find nobility, not in any sense. So he assumed Abimelech's guilt before he was guilty. Now, there's a little bit of attention there, right? Because as a security measure, it may be wise as as the, the traveling one to make some assumptions, right? We saw last time in Sodom that travelers are not always treated very well. It's a dangerous thing. You don't want to spend the night in the open square. So maybe that's maybe it's better to assume danger than safety, but what the story's implying is that Abraham found the exact opposite. Right? That he did discover that the fear of God was in that place. Abimelech has responded rightly with every word he's spoken and every action he's taken. So Abraham moves his second rebuttal, here's a quote for you, it hinges on a technicality, one that provides a moral loophole absolving Abraham in his own eyes of the wrong leveled at him. Sarah really is his sister, right? How often have we done this, right? Like, well, technically, like, I know I misled you, but technically I didn't lie. You know, he, that, that's, that's the patriarchal defense. Um, she is the, the daughter of the same father, but by a different mother. So she's his half-sister, now his wife. So then she became my wife. So he's almost like referring back to it like long before we were married, we were siblings. It's like our primary relationship. So that's fair, right? And uh, of course it's not, particularly when you're misleading someone into their own sin. Uh, but that's his defense. So first, I didn't know you were a good guy. Second, well, technically, it's not to set like I didn't lie. And then his final defense is he's arguing his own like vulnerability as, as a traveler outside the protection of his father's house. You know, he's, and sometimes we can do this too. We sort of use our, um, our religious characteristics as, a, as just this like, well, you know, I'm really vulnerable. I'm really, I just needed safety. I needed protection. And that's kind of what he's doing because my lifestyle is one that can be easily taken advantage of. And and uh, so I've requested the standing agreement between myself and my wife, uh, which ironically is risking the sanctity of our marriage and my wife's physical safety and the possibility now that she would bear someone else's seed in exchange for my security. Not great. Not a very admirable series of moves here. But Abimelech makes the next right move. He makes reparations with Abraham. Their interaction kind of comes to this uh, close for now with Abimelech's abundant generosity. He showers Abraham, the prophet of God, with gifts. Now that happened in Egypt too, but really more as a like, get out of here. I'm giving these two things to you so you'll leave. But here, Abimelech gives these things to him and welcomes him to stay. Right? He gives him sheep and oxen, all these livestock, and then male and female servants, just abundance from his own home, and he gives them to Abraham, and then he gives back Sarah. He's like, see, look, I'm doing what God told me, and a lot more than what God told me to do. Uh, and Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Now, once again, who said that before? Abraham said that before to Lot. That's the first of the trilogy. Right when Lot, there, there's this, um, they've come back up from Egypt, and he says, "Lot, see, my land is before you. Which way would you like to go?" 
Now Abimelech's offering Abraham, I mean, a part of what he doesn't know is his, Abraham's promised land. I know it's not quite the same as Abraham possessing the land, but you can see the move toward like the, the promise being fulfilled even through the hands of a Philistine king. And then he's generous to Sarah. <laughs> this is one of the best parts. Then to Sarah he says, Behold, I've given your brother <laughs> a thousand pieces of silver. A little sassy, right? A little sting <laughs> there like, okay? And, and this thousand pieces of silver, is, it's sort of like if you have, I mean, you've wronged somebody deeply because of your deception. And in return, they give you, you know, this million dollars. And, and, and in their doing so, they repeat to you back your own deception. Like, He's by far in his activity, he has the upper hand on Abraham in this narrative. This thousand pieces of silver is, is overwhelmingly generous. 20, so in Genesis, 20 shekels purchases a slave in chapter 37. 100 shekels buys a piece of land in chapter 33. 400 shekels purchases the property for Sarah's burial with this cave in it in chapter 23. And that was the right, that was not a discount. That's the right price for the land. So 1,000 shekels is over double that. In addition to everything else, the wife, the family, the, the servants, the, uh, you know, um, the livestock, all these things. There is no doubt what, what Abimelech is doing is he is erasing any doubt that he is unquestionably innocent. And from the perspective of the story, the better man. So Sarah and Abraham know that. Thus, she was rebuked. They are sheepish, tail tucked between their legs. They know they should not have done what they did. Now they identify Sarah particularly experiencing that. And interestingly, the epilogue presents Abraham not as sheepish, but as stepping right back in appropriately to the role that God has given him as prophet, as mediator, as intercessor. And that's what he does. Even though he has just fallen, he doesn't look good, the narrative ends with an intercessory prayer from Abraham on behalf of Abimelech. And God responds and he heals Abimelech right? Again, something that happened specifically to him. And Abimelech's wife and other female servants. So we learn here that God had closed up all of their wombs on account of Abimelech's unintentional error. So not only is, um, I mean, God, in God's threat of their death, he certainly could have been referring to just slaying them all on the spot. And he also could have been saying, no more kids for anybody. You're all going to die. So it could be that as well because he's closed up their wombs and they know it. So God's restoration, right? The, the, final, the final note on Abraham is, is encouraging. He's returned from the embarrassing deception to commune with God and to intercede once again on behalf of a righteous man. That's what Abraham should do, and he does it. God's restoration of Abimelech reminds the reader of God's promise. Certainly, if God opened up the wombs of Abimelech's household, God will open up the womb of the matriarch. A glimmer of hope. 
kind of shines through as, as the curtain closes on this narrative. Leaving Abimelech's home, Sarah's womb is importantly empty. She's back safely with her husband, whose seed she is promised to bear. So we can breathe this collective sigh of relief, for despite the waywardness and the moral weakness of the patriarchal pair, God is capable of upholding his word. So while a variety of thoughts are, are an application certainly are appropriate, my heart's been very encouraged this week to consider God's providence, which is the pivotal point in the story. Now, providence is the continuous agency of God by which he makes all the events of the physical and moral universe fulfill his predetermined goal. So, In other words, providence describes God's absolute control of all things toward his desired end. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. And God's pleasure, he pleases to do always that which he has promised. So you could say our God is in the heavens. He does what he promises. And this text, God is supremely active in orchestrating the world toward the purity of Abraham and Sarah's marriage, the reservation and reception of Sarah's womb for Abraham's seed. And to do so, we see God active in all sorts of ways. He sends diseases. He closes wombs. He appears in dreams. He delivers ultimatums. He does all of these things and more. God had promised Isaac within the year, and he will move mountains to ensure that that happens. Taking that timeless principle that God's desired end is always that which he has promised, then we would do well to reflect upon the promises of God to us and to joyfully rest in his ability to accomplish them. So as a little shotgun of promises, he promises rest to us, does he not? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest, Matthew 11. God promises to uphold us. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he will stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. God promises that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, we should boast all the more gladly about our weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon us. That is why, for Christ's sake, we delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when we are weak, then we are strong. He also promises our ultimate good in Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We could go on and on and on recounting the promises of God, Old and New Testaments to to be faithful to his people, to give flourishing lives to his people. And the result should be that we can wholly rest in his ability to do what's right. So practically speaking, we can entrust our children to God's providence. From infertility to the grave, we can trust God's providence for our children. That He will do what He desires with them and He can accomplish anything He wants to with them. We can entrust our spouses to God's providence. I don't have one exactly and trust it to His providence. I don't like mine. Well, trust it to His providence. Right? We're, we're growing old. Things are not going well. We're, we're breaking down physically. And trust it to His providence. God will do everything that He desires to do which is good and right and nothing can stand in His way. And perhaps most vulnerably, we can entrust ourselves to his providence. So when things go wrong, wouldn't Abimelech have probably said that things were going wrong when whatever this disease is brings him low? Don't we think that often things are going wrong when according to our assessment, they are? Well, that's not how I wanted it to be. Well, that was not my plan. Well, that was not what our world thinks is good, what our community believes is healthy or right. Who are you to say what is good and right? You have no idea what God is doing, why He's introducing these frustrating scenarios, why this health crisis? Why this death? Why this anything and everything that we face from the lost keys to the significant moments, all of them are God's providence moving, orchestrating, shaping, accomplishing exactly what he desires. Think about the difference between what we know and what he knows. His attention is concentrated everywhere. He prevents and permits. He directs and determines. You see, God's providence is grounded in His wisdom, in His knowledge, in His goodness, and in His power. He is the divinely skilled being with every piece of information, with every bit of goodness, with the complete ability to do whatever He wants. I'll leave you with this. One theologian said, an all-wise being knows the best means to the best end. And such a being is capable of superintending and providing the best care for all of his creation. Would you stand? Let's close in a word of prayer.